Well, the passage on which the sermon is based is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Um, just a, a quick word before I, I read the text. So we have a habit, and I think it is a good one. Um, you know, when we when we hear God's word read aloud, uh, the the reader will typically say, "This is the word of the Lord," and the congregation responds by saying, "Thanks be to God." Um, you don't have to do it right now. We'll, we'll do that in a minute. Uh, given the passage that I'm about to read. I'm anticipating that some of you might have a hard time saying thanks be to God. Uh, If you saw the email, you know what I'm talking about. However, I would encourage you to do that, not simply because it is a sort of rote ritual that we do every week. I would encourage you to do that as an act of faith recognizing that the God that we serve isn't simply encapsulated with these words. Now, he has given us the entire canon, and in that canon, we see a God of love, a God of compassion, a God of grace, a God who loves each and every person in this room. So, as I read these words and you hear them, I would encourage you, again, To respond with thanksgiving because it truly is a gift that our God has reached out to us, that he has made himself known to us, that even in a difficult passage for us like this, uh, we do get glimpses of his amazing love. With that said, 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, and do not let the fear of anything that is frightening, or do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we, we ask that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit as we in, engage with the words that he inspired to be written this morning. My Father, we pray that you would help us to set aside our own biases, uh, Father, help us to, uh, to see Jesus, even, even here in this text. Father, we need your grace and your spirit in order to do so. So please, uh, God, lavish us with your understanding and your presence. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Now, in general, it is a dangerous thing 
to make a judgment about something based on one encounter or to make a judgment about a whole based on one constituent part. To make an accurate or informed judgment, we often have to take a step back or revisit something which we may have had a negative experience with. I remember when I, when I went to, to Boston for seminary, I loved my time there, but I miss California. I especially miss California between December and May. And then again, between July and September, when it was, when it was humid, oh Lord, um, yeah, sub, uh, October and November were, were great. And I really loved October and November. Anyway, uh, when, when I was there, I, I really did miss California, and I sort of became an apologist for the state. Now, California is a place that a lot of people from out of state visit, understandably so. It's the best. Uh, so when I was back east, I, I had a fair amount of conversations with people who had been to California. And when they had negative impressions of my home state, I would fight them. No, I would not fight them. Uh, but I would quickly ask two questions. How many times have you been there? And where did you go? Because right? if you're, if, you know, if you've, for example, been to Barstow for three days one time, it's probably not that you're not going to walk away with the, the greatest feeling of the state as a whole. And I would ask those questions again because I found that people who didn't really like California often had only visited one time and only seen a limited part of the state. And I remember talking to one person in particular who was adamant that he just did not like California. And come to find out he'd been once as a kid because his family went to Disneyland and he really never left the park. And his reasoning, there's nothing wrong with Disneyland, but his reasoning for not liking California was that he felt that, you know, that Disney World in Florida was better. It's like, fine, like, whatever. What are you doing judging an entire state based on a theme park anyway? So why am I talking about this? Well, in a similar way, it is not uncommon for people in our culture to look at passages like 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 in isolation and conclude that the Bible denigrates women. But when you take a step back and you see the totality of what Scripture has to say about women and take a moment to understand the context in which these texts were written, I think you'll see that that is not at all the case. So before getting into the specifics of this passage, I want to take a step back and let's look together at the big picture of how God relates to women and men in the scriptures so that we can get a glimpse of God's radical, category-shattering love. So we're going to start together with the big picture. Um, and with that, we're going to begin with the beginning. Right. In Genesis 1, <laughs> this is going to be a long sermon, uh, <laughs> In Genesis 1, we are told that God created humans, male and female, in his image. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
See, in the ancient Near East, the language of being made in the image of God had a connotation of royalty. And in a world where women at the time were seen as inferior to men, this is something that was just taken for granted, Genesis unequivocally and absolutely establishes the equality of women and men. We're told in these verses that both women and men are equally made in God's image. They're equally blessed and they're equally given dominion over the earth. As one writer puts it, this means that men and women together in full participation must carry out God's mandate to build civilization and culture. Both men and women are called to do science and art, to build families and human communities. And the equality of men and women is reinforced in the crea- uh, in, when the creation account is retold in Genesis 2. Right? After God makes Adam, he declares that it is not good for him to be alone. In Genesis 2.18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, many have pointed out, and rightfully so, that the English word helper is not the best translation of the Hebrew word azer. When we hear the word helper, we often think of someone merely coming alongside a person who is able to complete a task just as well on their own. But that is not at all what's being communicated here with this word. Do you know who is most commonly described with the word azer? It's God himself. One whose help isn't anything less than essential. Other times the word is there is used to describe military help, such as reinforcements, without which a battle would almost certainly be lost. To help in the biblical context is to supply what is lacking. We also see in this passage that this helper is one that is meant to be fit for Adam. But this is also a less than helpful translation. Fit for him is a translation of a compound phrase that literally means like opposite him. What Genesis 2 is telling us is that in order to carry out the task that God had given to humanity, to complement the man, God created a strong helper that was like opposite him. One that would supply everything that he didn't have on his own. What this strongly implies is that men and women without one another, without one another, are strongly lacking something. As Kathy Keller writes, male and female are like opposite to one another. They are like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they are not exactly alike nor randomly different, but they are differentiated such that together they can create a complete whole. So then in the opening pages of the Bible, Women are given a dignity and a status that would have been absolutely unheard of in the ancient world. And we see that fleshed out in the life and ministry of Jesus. Seen through first century eyes, Jesus' treatment of women was absolutely shocking. I'm just going to do a rundown, a brief rundown of some of the highlights. In John chapter 4, verses 7 through 30, Jesus has his longest recorded conversation with, any, with, with a single individual. Do you know who it was with? It was with a Samaritan woman of ill repute. Such a thing wasn't done. Her race, 
her gender, her sexual exploits. She had been married five times and was currently living with someone who is not her husband. All of those things combined should have made her someone that Jesus avoided. But he didn't. He sought her out. He gives her the time of day in a way that he didn't for most men because it was important to Jesus that she understood that she had dignity and worth. This was shocking, not just to outside observers, but to Jesus' own, dis- own disciples. As John records, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? They would think they were learning, not to question Jesus at this point. But friends, this was not an isolated incident. Jesus repeatedly welcomed women that his contemporaries found contemptible. We see another example in Luke chapter 7. There Jesus was invited to a banquet uh, at the house of a prominent Pharisee. And while there, there's a a woman who crashes the party and she immediately begins making a scene. She is weeping and she takes ointment and anoints Jesus' feet with that ointment and her tears and she wipes them with her hair. The entire crowd is scandalized. The the Pharisee who was hosting the party was indignant. How could Jesus entertain company with a sinful woman like this? That was the thought. And this is what we actually have recorded. The Pharisee thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. But Jesus turns the tables on his host and he affirms this woman as an example of love. He regularly welcomed women who were despised as sexual sinners. He also welcomed women who were deemed unclean. There's a a powerful encounter in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus comes into physical contact with a woman who had been ceremonially unclean for 12 years because of a constant discharge of menstrual blood. This woman was in a desperate condition and she thought, if I could just touch Jesus' clothes, I might be healed. Well, she did and she was. Now, most people in that situation would have been indignant. They would have turned around and immediately rebuked her. Why? Well, if she's unclean by touching him, he would also then be rendered unclean. But in this encounter and later on in in that same chapter, Jesus has the opposite effect. Instead of becoming unclean himself, he makes the unclean person clean And he does turn around and he draws her out, not so that he could rebuke her, not so that he could say, how dare you touch me? No, he calls her out so that he could speak these words over her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Immediately after this, Jesus reaches the house of a 12-year-old girl. This was what he originally set out to do. And in the time that Jesus was traveling, the girl had died. Again, making, becoming unclean, it was, it was against Jewish custom, against Jewish law to, to come into physical contact with a dead body. But Jesus set all of that aside. He goes into her room, he takes her by the hand, and he says to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she did. 
With these encounters in mind, the writer Rebecca McLaughlin writes, whether little girls or prostitutes, whether despised foreigners or women made unclean by menstrual blood, whether married or single, sick or disabled, Jesus made time for women and treated them with care and respect. And look, there is so much more that can be said, and I'm going to say a little bit more. Uh, Like the fact that just about every time that a woman is compared to a man in the Gospel of Luke, it is the woman who ends up looking good. Or the fact that in all four Gospels, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. This was at a time when a woman's testimony didn't hold up in court. Or the fact that Jesus encouraged women to learn alongside men. This was something that did not happen at the time. That incredibly countercultural reality is fleshed out powerfully in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus is at the house of his two friends, Mary and Martha. While Jesus was there, Martha was busy doing the culturally expected things. She was serving. She was preparing things for the men who were, who were present. Mary, on the other hand, she was sitting at Jesus' feet, learning alongside his disciples. Well, Martha doesn't like this, and so she goes to Jesus and she expects him to correct that situation. But Jesus instead responds by saying to Martha, I am not in the right passage. Nope, I just didn't include it. I'm just going to tell you what it says. In Luke 10, 42, you're going to have to take my word for it. He says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. In a culture where women were expected to serve, not to learn, Jesus affirms Mary's learning from him alongside his disciples. Okay, there is still more that can be said, but I I will limit myself for now. But one more thing that I want to point out before we look at the specifics of what we have in 1 Peter 3 is the cultural impact that Christianity had for women when it first came onto the scene in the Roman world. According to one author, Christianity remade the world for women. To say that women were undervalued in the in first century Greco-Roman culture, doesn't, it doesn't even begin to get at the issue. One of the, the brute facts by which we can judge how the ancient world valued women was the common practice of female infanticide, of abandoning little girls, unwanted babies. We gain insight into the practice from an actual letter we have from a Roman soldier to his wife written in 1 B.C., Overall, the the letter is actually affectionate, but it includes this troubling instruction. He says, Above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If it is female, cast it out. As a result of this practice, there was a massive gender imbalance in the Roman Empire. Far more men than women. It was Christians in the early church who changed that. And it was because of the biblical teaching that both men and women were created in the image of God. And it was the example of Jesus' treatment of women that the status of women began to change. According to the sociologist Rodney Stark, Christianity condemned, quote, traditional male prerogatives in regard to divorce, incest, infidelity, polygamy, and female infanticide. Rather than being seen as inferior to men, Christians believed and taught 
that women were equally made in God's image. Rather than being free to use slaves and prostitutes to fulfill their sexual desires, men were expected to be faithful to one wife or, remain in, or to remain in celibate singleness. The Christian husband was to love his wife as Christ loved the church. While Roman families often married off prepubescent daughters, Christian women could marry later. A woman whose husband died was affirmed in remaining single, but also free to marry if she chose to, so long as her husband belonged to the Lord. These rights afforded to women, again, were previously unheard of. The historian Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, a different Tom Holland, uh, he himself is, is not a Christian, but in 2019 he wrote a book in which he sort of begrudgingly concludes that most of our secular Western values are deeply shaped by Christianity. He writes, quote, that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign, to campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of this principle lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. It might strike us as weird that the equality of men and women is something that even needs to be established, but that's because we live in a culture that for the last 2,000 years has been deeply shaped by Christianity. All right, so that is the big picture. That's the larger context, and so now we need to start narrowing our focus. All right. What I read at the beginning is from a letter from Peter written to Christians spread throughout the Roman Empire. They're suffering persecution at the hands of those in power. For some, systems that once worked in their favor have now turned against them. For others, like wives who are being addressed here, they're used to unfair treatment, but they need help understanding their new, more nuanced identity in Christ. They've been given the incredible news that they, too, are heirs with Christ, that they have been set free by Him, that they are citizens of heaven, that they are daughters of the King thereof. Yet the surrounding community doesn't seem to know or care about that. And what is Peter's encouragement to every group of people that belongs to Jesus that will receive this letter? Well, we see that in 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's instructions to all believers, regardless of gender or station, is to adorn the gospel with their lives. And in the very next verse, he tells us how we can do that. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We adorn the gospel by living lives of humility and submission, which we said last week was willingly setting aside our desires and needs for the desires and needs of others. And who's our example of that? Jesus. 
Peter writes in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. These verses establish that Jesus is our example. We see that in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So he's our example. He's also the one who enables us to do what he calls us to. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We have a greater capacity to do just that because of the indwelling spirit of Jesus. But most importantly, these verses establish that Jesus is our Savior. By his wounds, you have been healed. And this section about Jesus is the focal point. It is the focal point of last week's text. And it is the focal point of this passage as well. And the basic idea that as we copy the pattern of Jesus' submission in, various, in the various places we find ourselves, God can and will use that to do a work, to bring glory to himself, to win others to Christ. Now, that's the immediate context of these verses. And what is the specific situation that Peter is addressing? Verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Peter is talking here to female Christians who are now... Excuse me, uh, female Christians who, who likely have recently converted, married to non believing men. These women have encountered Jesus. They are now experiencing freedom in Jesus. They have received a status from Jesus that far surpasses anything that they have ever experienced. These women are citizens of a new kingdom, they are daughters of the king. And what is Peter's instruction to them? It is to follow the pattern of their King Jesus, the pattern of submission that he himself demonstrated. Why? Because they're helpless? Because they're less than? Absolutely not. No, they are called to submit so that they can show their unbelieving husbands the goodness of Jesus in both word and deed, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, this call to submit, which we'll unpack shortly, is going to strike many of us as being repressive. And some have looked at this passage and some of what we see in the writings of Paul and have concluded that they were at odds with Jesus, that they didn't like or or agree with his radical inclusiveness. But I don't think that that is at all the case. And I'm going to explain two reasons why, just from, from the text. One 
Peter has a space in his mind for wives who have a different religion than their husbands. Again, in the first century, that did not happen. And secondly, women are being addressed directly. I'm, I'm a broken, broken record here. But again, in the first century, that didn't happen. If Peter were diverging from Jesus, if he were just trying to uphold the cultural norms of the day, he wouldn't have addressed wives. He would have talked to men in the congregation and told them to keep the women in the congregation in line. That's not at all what he's doing here. Peter, in addressing wives directly, assumes that they have a dignity, that they have a worth, and the ability to make meaningful decisions about their lives and conduct. And Peter's encouragement here is to use that God-given dignity to conduct yourself in a respectful and pure manner so that their husbands might encounter Jesus. So that's the idea in a lopsided marriage, when a believing woman is married to a non-believing man. But what about in a Christian, what about in a Christian marriage? Well, the call for wives to submit is, is still there. In Ephesians 5, through 24, we read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, to, submit in everything to their husbands. But the instructions here given to wives, starting in verse 22, are grammatically linked to the preceding section. So if I can, can I, can I do some grammar real quick? You guys have the patience for that? All right, let's do some grammar. In the original language, verses 18 through 21 are one long sentence which commands that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. And within this one long sentence are five participles. Participles are verbal adjectives. And these participles describe what life in the Spirit looks like. So some of the, some of the participles that we have here include addressing one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melodies in our hearts to God, giving thanks always and for everything, and finally, Submitting to one another. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The verb submit is not actually repeated in verse 22. It's understood from the previous section. So that is the framework with which we are to understand Peter, or Paul's specific commands to husbands and wives. As one commentator writes, when we are full of the Holy Spirit, we all will defer to and serve each other in the spirit of Christ. Every Christian man and woman is called to serve in humility, counting others more significant than themselves. So it's within this framework that Paul gives specific instructions to wives and to husbands. And it's worth noting that in this text, as well as in our text in 1 Peter, that the instructions are given to wives and husbands not to women and men. This is not a call for women in general to submit to men in general. This is a call for wives to submit to their own husbands. But the Christian ideal for marriage is not some sort of Victorian model for family with a quiet little wife on the sidelines. That is not at all what the command to submit means. 
The command for wives to submit to their husbands in these passages doesn't mean that husbands get to call the shots, that they get to make all of the decisions while their wives smile and go along. Now, such a model goes completely against God's original intention. God created humans, male and female, so that they might complete one another. Eve was Adam's Azair, his strong helper who was fit for him, or better yet, like opposite him. She was the one who would supply all that he was lacking. And while Adam was Eve's head, and husbands are called the head of their wives here in Ephesians, her role was not passive. Adam needed her in order to carry out the task that God called them to. And he needed her in order to reflect God's multifaceted wisdom and character. The same is true for husbands and wives today. And what are husbands called to? I'm going to keep borrowing, or, uh, sorry, we're going to look at uh, 1 Peter 3 to 7 first. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, so the call in 1 Peter is to honor, is for husbands to honor their wives as their co-heirs. Again, at the time, this was radical. Women weren't heirs. It was only the firstborn son. But you have this great equalizing here in the gospel. But if we're looking with uh, 21st century eyes at this passage, what do we immediately recognize? You can, someone say it. Yep, there we go. Weaker vessels. That's typically what our mind is, is immediately drawn to. So the question then is, what is that referring to? Is Peter undercutting Genesis? Is he undercutting Jesus? No, not at all. See, at the time that Peter wrote this letter, Roman law had begun to soften towards women. During the first century, laws began to be passed giving women rights of property ownership and protection from domestic abuse. But for hundreds of years up to this point, no such thing existed. Instead, the paterfamilias, or the, fa- or the family father, held sway in the home on all decisions regarding property and family, more than that, he had the power of life and death over every member of his family. Infants deemed too expensive to be raised could be, could be abandoned at his command. Adult children could be executed by fathers who believed them to be rebellious or deceitful. And most relevant to this passage, husbands had legal power to do, to do just about anything they wanted to do to their wives, and generally with the physical capacity to back it up. So at the time that Peter was writing, Rome had new laws on the books, but practices remained much the same. So Peter uses a word picture to point out the physical and legal power, the physical and legal protection that men had at the time. And his instruction is to use that to honor their wives, understanding that they too we're heirs of the grace of life. And what does that look like? Well, Paul helps us to understand, uh, understand with his instructions to husband in Ephesians 5.25. 
What does it look like for a husband to honor his wife, to live in an understanding way? Paul explains, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In verse 23, we're told that the husband is the head of the wife, which means that he is given a degree of authority. But what is he given authority to do? To love and serve his wife like Jesus. The command to love may not seem radical to us, but it certainly was when Paul wrote those words. Several Jewish and Roman texts had had household codes, which gave instructions for various people who occupied a home. In these codes, husbands were always told to rule over their wives, but never told to love. The New Testament turns that on its head. Husbands are never told to rule over their wives. Instead, they are instructed to love them. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, this is a call to die to ourselves. As we follow the example of Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, who had been given all authority in heaven and on earth, but did not see his authority as something to benefit himself, but instead gave up everything for his bride, the church. This is the pattern that is set before husbands. So this means that as husbands, if we are being domineering, if we are being inconsiderate, if we are being selfish, then we are shaming the office that we've been called to All right. I want to close by, by just asking a question. What is the point of marriage? What is the goal? What is all of this meant, uh, meant to point to? What is, what is the purpose that marriage itself is meant to serve? Well, we're going to borrow from Paul again. In Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here is the mystery of marriage. Our marriages are not ends in themselves. They are signs of a much more significant reality. They are pointers to the love that God has lavished on his people in the gospel. Diedrich Bonhoeffer once wrote in a marriage homily, Something of the divine splendor is reflected in our earthly relationships, and this reflection we should recognize and honor. See, when husband and wife come together, when we recognize one another's shortcomings and failures, but still commit ourselves to one another despite them all, when we sharpen one another and complete one another, when we say, I do and mean it, sticking to it even when it's hard, when we forgive each other, when we, when we accept one another, we demonstrate to a watching world something of the beauty of the gospel. That is the gift and the privilege of marriage. To get to participate in, to get to show the love, the faithfulness, the commitment that we've received from the ultimate bridegroom, Jesus. 
Uh, I, was, I was struck by this recently. Um, it was around Easter. There's an article in the New York Times. There's an interview uh, with Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in our denomination. Uh, he's written prolifically. Um, but he is... Uh, sorry, about, about two years ago, he was diagnosed with uh, a terminal condition. He has stage four pancreatic cancer. And so the topic of this interview was, um, was how he viewed Easter now that he has this, this terminal condition. How is that, how has the meaning of Easter changed for him? And one of the things that, that he said, I mean, he said, he said lots of things, um, but he said that when he, he received the, the diagnosis from his doctor, and the doctor was very straightforward with him, very blunt, said, you're not, you're not going to survive this. Uh, he said that after he and, and his wife, Kathy, went through a, a mourning period, um, he said he kind of, he woke up from that and uh, wrote in his, his journal one word, and that word was focus. It's like, okay, I've got a limited amount of time. I need to focus. And so the question was, so what, what did you focus on? And the first thing that he said was his marriage. Which, when I first read that, I just thought like, oh, like that's, that's really sweet. Sweet, Tim. Um, but I think he said that because he, I think more than most people, understands the purpose of marriage. He, he did write a book called The Meaning of Marriage, so he should. See, he understands that his marriage isn't just about him and his wife, Kathy. He loves her. He, he, he says that she is his partner. They're, they're basically joined at the hip. But his desire to work on their marriage wasn't simply a desire to, to relate better to her. No, he wants his marriage to reflect the gospel of Jesus as best as it possibly can. He wants their relationship, again, to, to point to the beauty of the love that Jesus has lavished on us. And friends, as, as married people, that is our calling. And that is a beautiful calling. Connected to that, however, we, we need to remind ourselves that though good marriages get to point to the gospel, marriages are not the gospel. Rebecca McLaughlin writes, in one sense, human marriage is designed to disappoint. Why? Because it's meant to leave us longing for Jesus, the true bridegroom, and the only one who can actually satisfy us. Uh, I've been married now for, for almost 11 years, and 11 years in, I'm a fan. I, I, like, I like marriage. Um, five stars on Yelp, it's great. Uh, Katie and I met when we were like literally children. I was 12, uh, Katie was 10. Uh, we started dating late in high school. Uh, we dated for like through high school and college, so for five years before we finally got married. Um, and to say that, that I love Katie more now than I did when we first got, uh, first got married, it's hard for me to imagine a greater understatement. Because uh, looking back, I, I feel like I didn't even know Katie. Uh, which is, is funny because, you know, like, as I established, we were children when we met um, and had dated for five years before that. But, but I had no idea who this woman was going to become. And I am so grateful uh, 
for who, who God has made her. But Katie, as wonderful as she is, and she's really wonderful, I have definitely married up, Katie is not Jesus. And to say that I'm not, I mean, <laughs> it, goes, it goes without saying. I feel so grateful for my marriage, but it cannot satisfy in an ultimate sense. Why? Because only Jesus can. And just a quick word, this is why singleness in the church is so important. Right? We need examples of faithful and godly single people who can demonstrate what satisfaction in Jesus looks like without a spouse. But for those of us who are married, the true privilege of our relationship with our spouse is the opportunity that we have to give tangible expression to the self-sacrificial love of the husband who loved his wife so much that he was willing to die for her. The beautiful thing about marriage, the gift of marriage, is the ways in which it points us to Jesus. So may we show the goodness of Jesus by the way we love one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. Uh, we thank you for the ways in which it encourages us. We thank you for the ways that it challenges us. And we ask now, God, that you would, again, help us to, to hear it as your word. Help us to trust you. And God, help us to, help us to cling to to your love, which is so evident in your word. Father, for the ways in which we fall short of exemplifying your goodness and love, Lord, forgive us. Lord, help us. Um, Father, this is a place where where many of us have failed, where, where we continue to fail. So we need you. We need your help. We need your love. We need your grace. And God, we thank you for the the assurance that all of those things are freely given to us in Jesus. That's in his great name we pray. Amen.